Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, before the pandemic, when we could go see live theater in person, my guest was seeing at least 100 plays a year. When the coronavirus made it impossible for us to go see live events together, he immediately was one of the first to figure out how to pivot and create incredible theatrical content online that is now viewed globally by audiences all over the world. And not only is he using that opportunity with his company, Play Per View, to raise money for incredible arts organizations, he also made sure that the artists involved in the productions that he was streaming got paid. And for that and so many more reasons, I'm honored to have Jeremy Ween on the podcast. Welcome, Jeremy. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everybody. My guest today is Jeremy Ween. Jeremy is a producer and director. Some of his producing credits include Kevin McDonald, Alive, Godspell, The Broadway Revival, Faux Snow, Take Me Home, and the documentary called The Bitter Buddha. He is also the founder of the New York City Podcast Festival, which is how I got to meet my dear friend Jeremy. He recently produced the debut EP for the U.S. Open, but today we are here to talk about his latest project, Play Per View, which programs a variety of one-time-only events, including play readings, monologues, panel discussions, and more, to provide live-streamed content for audiences who love the experience of live entertainment and, due to the restrictions created by physical distancing practices, can't attend in person. And the money raised from Play Per View events goes to support artists through many, many incredible organizations. I'm so thrilled to welcome Jeremy Ween to the podcast today. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Alana. It's a really an honor to get to be on your podcast. You know, I'm such a big fan of it. And thank you so much for agreeing to uh, let me come on and and talk with you about all the stuff going on. Well, the incredible thing, as you know, as a podcast lover, is there is such a kind of immediate connection between 
host and listener, and I feel like the community that has grown in my life personally from people who found the podcast, then reaching out to me, and now becoming true life friends is just one of the bonuses of doing this I never would have expected. So you have been such a gift to the theatrical community, to the podcast community, um, you know, as you follow your own dreams as well. And so it's so great to have you here. Um, you know, when we first met pre-pandemic, you were producing and directing so many things in, you know, the live event space. And, you know, you you can tell your own story, but I just want to say as someone who's observed the way you have figured out how to pivot uh, so much live entertainment onto the internet for people to stream and at the same time giving so many creatives an opportunity to do what they love to do in this very restrictive time. I just want to start by saying thank you because it's been an incredible thing that you've done aside from the fact that the streaming creates some revenue to put into organizations that are supporting artists. So all of that is a long preamble to this conversation, but I just wanted to start with a huge thank you. And then you can tell listeners sort of how it's been going and how you do what you do with Play Per View. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, it really has become quite a thing. You know, um, I outside of everything, I... In a normal time, I see about 100 to 120 productions a year. So I see a lot of theater. And, you know, I the short version of this is um, last January, I was, uh, I was in San Francisco. We were doing Kevin McDonald's show in a festival. And I remember being in the hotel and on CNN, seeing some story about something going on in Wuhan. And I was with my girlfriend at the time, and she's a medical professional. And I said to her, huh, that seems, this seems concerning. And so in the back of my head, I kind of knew that this was going on. I remember talking to people at work about what was going on. And then, you know, it just suddenly, it seemed like it suddenly just slammed into everything here. And I remember going, I, I went and saw Club Thumbs production of Tamacho, which is a brilliant play, musical, uh, play with music. Um, and it ended up, what ended up being their closing, they were one of the last shows to perform before everything shut down. It was March 13th. And I just remember walking out the door of the theater that night and I could hear a clock start ticking. And like, I knew that this was not going to, I, I knew sadly this was not going to be the two week scenario that everyone thought it was going to be. And so it was like, okay, what are these places going to do? Because this is going to go on for a while and the financials are just going to be a mess. And so, you know, it, it, the plan was originally a lot different. It was, we were going to get people in a room together and film things and send them out so people could watch. And then, you know, the, the CDC guidance just kept shifting over and over again. And then, you know, Concurrent to that, this thing called Zoom, which had been around for a while, was suddenly becoming very prevalent um, within like the two or so weeks before everything really came to a grinding halt. And so essentially it was like, okay, what if we did a reading on on this platform? What if, you know, I can get someone interesting to let us do their play? And I knew, I've known Lucas Nath for quite a while 
Um, and I texted him and I said, hey, we're going to do this crazy thing. Can we have the right to one of your plays to do it as a reading? And Lucas is the best. He's so game for this kind of stuff. And so we, it took like a day or two to figure that out. Uh, and we landed on Doll's House Part 2, which we thought would be like kind of buzzy and might get people interested. And concurrent to that, like Maria Dizia had responded to a tweet I sent out. And so we got her and Linda Powell and a couple other people. And that that process was crazy. We didn't have everyone together for that reading till the hour before we went live. And it was just like, is anyone going to care? Um you know, and we had 150 people watch that first one, which like now comparative to what we do doesn't seem like a lot, but you know, it, it showed that we had something and now we're sitting here a year later, we've done, we've done 45 events, 38 of which have been play readings. Um, and it's really, it's really been a, an interesting experience. So I think as we speak, it is in fact, either literally today or in in within a few days the year anniversary of what you've been doing and i'm curious from that first zoom reading uh if you were you know going to hang up with me and go into rehearsal for your next project what does it look like now has the technology changed or is it still zoom how are you doing it well so yeah so march 23rd 2020 was that first reading. And I, I feel very confident in saying, I think we were the first Zoom play reading that happened when everything shut down. I mean, to give credit, there's been a lot of groups that have been exploring, you know, online stuff mm -hmm. and multimedia and virtual and all that kind of stuff. So I don't want to sit here and be like, we're the first that did it. But in terms of what we set out to do, we definitely, we hit the ground running. And I kind of half jokingly say, you know, I feel like we did a lot of public R&D for the first six months for a lot of the other theater companies in the country, because a lot of the theater companies kind of, you know, dragged their feet. But now it's a lot of similar stuff to what we're doing, even down to some of the, the pricing structuring mm -hmm. I've noticed. Did people contact you and ask for advice or guidance? Or are they sort of looking at what you're doing and then recreating it for themselves? It was, it was a mixture of things. I would get someone connecting me to someone else who would be like, hey, um, so so-and-so at this theater, um, they were hoping, do you have like some time to talk mm -hmm. to them? And I would always be happy to help because, you know, the, the, the big kind of mission of all of this is like helping, helping organizations that need the support right. and I, I never had a problem being like yeah what can I answer for you or like you know we would do one early on with a theater company that just like you know the the thing for us would be like this is a great way to dip your your foot in the pool um you know you can do one with us and if it goes well you know you kind of have the tools and yeah, the insight the model to for it. it right um, but yeah it was it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of that. And it was, it was interesting because in those early days I saw like a lot of things pop up that like were very much what we were doing, like not in their own vein, but very much trying to kind of like do what we were doing and none of them really seemed to stick around. Mm -hmm. Um, and you then know. you have, you know, things like Moliere in the park that were really able to pivot 
from, you know, doing it live to streaming and, and sort of figure out ways to be really innovative with the technology. I mean, I guess I see or, people really having fun out there and not just the theater artists getting to perform, but all sorts of people getting to come on board and create, you know, the visuals and the, and the design of the thing. And that's really exciting yeah. to see too. And also a credit to Irish Rep for the, they, yep. they were one of, I, they were one of the few companies in New York that saw it immediately and hit in and pivoted incredibly fast. And I think it really paid off for them because in terms of conversation, you know, when people keep talking about this Irish rep just comes up over and over and over again. And it's so funny not to like um, divert the conversation, but I was thinking about how when we when we first met in person was when you came to um tour the venue we were doing the podcast festival at and then i said to you oh i'm i have to go i'm going to see a show and you were like what are you seeing and i was like oh blah 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 irish rep and you were like that's where i'm going yeah ended up and we somehow ended up next to each other somehow it was very it was very weird and like what odds that we were going to the same performance and we ended up sitting next to each other it's 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 interesting to see and i think it's going to be interesting to continue to see what companies treat this as a Mm band-aid and what companies put this in their tool belt you know i know a handful of theater companies that intend to keep doing this kind of work even when they can open their doors again because this this stuff has enabled them to connect with patrons that are never going to physically walk through their doors, right. but are interested in the work that they are making. Yep. And so how do you convert those people into, quote, digital patrons? Um, you know, I think that's what's so kind of, I think that's what's kind of beautiful about this is that, like, you can do these projects and people can be all over the world and you can make stuff with someone who's in Australia and someone who's in Ireland and someone who's in LA and someone who's in Chicago. Um, you know, and we've, we've, you know, also in the terms of the places I've connected with, you know, we've raised money for nonprofit theaters in nine different States now. Um, you know, in May I have, projects lined up with a group in Chicago, a group in LA, a group in New York. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's the whole thing about this is like accessibility, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, obviously the part that has gotten more complicated because what started out, as you mentioned at the beginning, is a two-week pause in theater, in the world of live theater. You know, we're now over a year into it. And so, what wasn't necessarily happening at the beginning was the involvement of unions. And now, because it has become, as, as you've just said, not just for independent contractors like yourself, but all kinds of established theaters using this model as a way to continue to stream their work globally at this point, um, there are now a lot more hands involved. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about negotiating that um, and the difference from when you first began in the sort of I've got a bar and let's put on a show model and now, you know, 50 events later, um, is it easier? Is it more complicated having a lot of cooks in the kitchen? How is that going? And how will that affect the future of this going forward? 
I think we're in a unique situation as an entity um, for a variety of reasons. Um, we're we're a majority charitable organization. Almost everything we bring in immediately goes back out, mm-hmm. um, whether that's to the charity, whether that's to honorariums for the talent. Everyone gets an honorarium. Um, I'm not asking anyone to do any of these for for no cost. Um, I don't believe in that for any of my projects. Um, I believe in any of my projects being accessible, but everyone gets paid in in actual they I don't believe exposure fills someone's stomach or puts a roof over right. their head. The question mark that we're looking at right now is what does because I've spent a year building this. This is a company now. I, I don't see this in any way going away when the pandemic is over. Right. Um and I will be very clear about that. Um this is this is my theater company now, right. in a way. Right. Um so the question that the question, the answer to the question right now is also a question, which is when theaters reopen, what happens to this? Are the unions going to radically try to pull back? Are there going to be more complicated restrictions to getting this kind of work out? And that's what the kind of thing is, is that I see this as a long-term company, but I don't necessarily know what the answer to the equation is of what we do past a certain point. And, you know, operating in that ambiguity is a little bit scary, Mm -hmm. but I think, you know, and, you know, to the people listening disclosure, you know, you and me kind of had a conversation about this last week where I, I just feel like you can't, like you can't unlock the gate and then everything invite people in and then everything gets better. And then you shut the door, you shut the gate again. Um, So I think it's going to be really, I I think that's also to a point why equity would drag their feet so much at the beginning of all of this, because it was kind of like, well, once you open the bottle, how do you put the cork back? Right. You know? And I think the, they really didn't want to give up certain positions and all of that. But this is something that people have been really pushing for for years and years and years, even before this, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And I think if anything, this has shown that people want this content. Um, You know, the argument keeps being made that like, oh, well, you know, once you put something on, once you film it and put it on streaming, it kills it kills the vi- the future viability of it because why does someone want to pay X amount to go see it when they can pay $7 and watch it on Netflix? I know handfuls of people who have never seen Hamilton live. They've seen it now on Disney Plus and the first thing they want to see when they can is Hamilton. So think about this. There's a show. You maybe think you want to see it. There's no, there's no real video. There's very little video of it. You know, you've heard the recording, but you know that the people maybe that you're going to see aren't going to be in it. And, you know, in order to see it, it's going to cost you two hundred dollars. It's it's a commitment. That's a huge. That's a blind commitment being asked of someone. Now they pay ten dollars and they see a version of it and they have more of a context of it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, I you know, that was really great. I, you know, if this is, 
this this has convinced me that I want to spend an evening. I want to go have dinner. I want to go with my wife or my kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to go and share that communal version of what this was. How do you make, you know, there's no, I mean, I think what you're saying is that they're two different things. You're not trying to replace the live theater experience or the communal Mm -hmm. experience that one has. It's not just watching the play. It's suddenly you're having an experience with the person like I did when we went to a play, you know, Mm -hmm. sitting next to you, whether they're strangers or friends. So if it isn't trying to recreate the experience of being in in a live theatrical event venue with other people, what is it? What f- filming? Yeah, something streaming it. Yeah, what works about do- streaming that can? It's not. It can't compete with the live experience. But what? What are people getting? What has the response been? The thing that's been interesting to see, especially in this last year, between Hamilton and also, you know, the the pro capture of um, American Utopia, which Spike Lee shot, which is really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, what the Constitution means to me, which uh, brought in a film director to capture. Um, I, I think I think ultimately what it all comes down to, I think it's I think all of this can be compelling in either way because it's ultimately about storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's ultimately about, you know, we're starting to have these conversations at Play Preview about, you know, what is the long term what does our company look like? And we are starting to kind of discuss, you know, kind of doing these hybrid projects. Uh, And, you know, we're talking about going back and like recreating prior productions from years ago. Hmm. Do you mean fully staged? Well, so that's, that's the conversation is, well, how does, how do, how, how does what we are proposing enhance the storytelling right you know how does how do we walk this balance of it's not a film but it's not a live capture it's something that kind of lives in between mm-hmm. you know an example that people who are listening to this might have seen recently um uh they just did um the last five years which disclosure uh out of the box theatrics was the uh, producing company of that show and there are they are our financial sponsor. There are five hundred one c three sponsor disclosure, but they shot this beautiful, immersive production of the last five years, and they shot it in this apartment in Brooklyn. And the band is playing throughout the apartment, so the actors are kind of walking by them, like they're in, it, like it just looked really amazing. Yeah, and I saw it; it was so good. But it's not a movie, right? You know what I mean? It doesn't. It doesn't feel like a movie, it feels like something that you could only kind of achieve in this in-between kind of state. And, you know, I, I've told this story in a couple of interviews, but, you know, early on when we were doing this, um, Peter Marks at the Washington Post had written this article where it essentially he was like, I don't get this. This isn't theater. This is like imit- this is like margarine. This is like imitation butter. It's not the real thing. And I sent a tweet to Peter and I said, I think you should come see what we're doing. We don't think that we're butter. We kind of think we're cream cheese. 
you know, we're, 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 we're somewhere else on that, on that scale. And I think he was so intrigued by that tweet. And so he came to what the next reading was. And it just happened to be this play called Four Woke Bays by this great writer, Jonathan Karen. And it happened to be like our first Zoom reading where we really kind of like started to play with like what we could do. It was the first one. We had sound effects. We had um, music. Um, we had people had like shotguns that they were like handing to each other through the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, the writer went and got physical backgrounds of a campsite made. So everyone had physical backgrounds behind them. And Peter came and saw it and he was like, that was fantastic. And and Peter and Peter has become a big champion of what we've been doing. And I think, you know, it, it's I'm never gonna sit here and say what we're doing is theater or trying to be a replacement for theater. I've really been trying to work under the guise of this kind of being this new kind of art form expression hybrid kind of thing. It's it's the intimacy of film, but the immediacy of theater. And the language and playwriting language, which is different and heightened. And I, I think about how you said earlier that you probably saw at least 125 plays a year. Um, I just want to get personal for a second. And I want to ask you, this passion and love for theater Um, where does that come from? Who planted that seed for you? I, you know, I think it was without like getting super into it because then we'll just be here for hours. Um, you know, I, I had a very tumultuous childhood. Um, I, my, my parents divorced early. They both had histories with drugs and alcohol and, you know, I, at, the, at the end of the day, it could have been a lot worse and people have had a lot worse childhoods and all that kind of stuff. But it was very tumultuous. And I, I started to see theater and to a degree film as kind of like an escape, mm-hmm. like to the idea of like, you know, being someone that you weren't like I did. I did. I did musicals and plays in high school. Uh, you know, I was the principal in Footloose, um, you know, so it, it, it felt like this way to like not be me mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. And then it also, you know, I, I feel like I was in anticipation of this. I was trying to think about, it. I was like, what are my earliest theater memories? Mm-hmm. I feel like some people like know that so off right. the top of Like my head. first Broadway I, show was, right. right. Or the to Tonys sit- or whatever their Tony. access was. Right. And I really had to sit there because I was, I was kind of fortunate, you know, I grew up in South Florida and we had the Broward Center for the Performing right. Arts, which. Amazing. It's a major venue. They get first, they get first national tours right. in, in that. So like. I saw um, I saw the first national tour with Avenue Q with Rob McClure mm-hmm. as my principal. And I brag about that all the time because I love Rob and it it's always so funny. It's so funny to go back and see who was in those in those shows. Like I saw the first national tour of Putnam County Spelling Bee, and oh my God, the people that were in that show now, like Sarah Styles and um 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 uh 
Jennifer Smart. Like it was just like now it's all the people that like you know and love on Broadway. But this was like some of their first like professional like tours that they were doing. But I was like, I was sitting and I was like, but what was and that was like in high school. So I was like, what what was earlier than that? And I have like vague memories of my grandmother taking me to see Kathy Rigby and Peter Pan mm-hmm. when I was like six, mm-hmm. I want to say. Right. And I have like a vague memory of maybe seeing the first national tour of the Lion King. Not that I have the playbill, but I just like, I can't confirm it, right. but like I know in my head that yeah. I, that I observed it. So as someone who like really loves it, like loves it, um, how has this experience sort of compared, not just in the producing of it, but when you like go, that that really worked. What we did tonight really worked. I'm really proud of this. Um, what are you getting from the experience? I know it's very hectic when you're producing the thing, but when you get to also then watch it, and, and this is a two-part question, are you very specific now when you curate these streaming plays versus something you might produce for a live theater event are you looking for different things in the script because you know okay this will work better as a streaming thing versus when we're back in the theater I want to do this in a theater I mean honestly we've done certain things over the last year that now I don't have any qualms about reading a thing and going is this going to translate to the to what we're doing you mean everything translates to what you're doing I think you can, I think there's a universe where you can, I think you mm-hmm. have to be very creative yeah. to figure out solutions. Like, but I, I give, this as the example we did, we did the elaborate entrance of Chad deity by Christopher Diaz. And it's a play about wrestling and they wrestle throughout the entire play. And I remember when we announced we were doing this reading, um, Elizabeth Vincitelli, who's a critic at the New York Times, and she's also been a really fantastic supporter of what we've been doing. I just remember her retweeting it, the announcement and going, oh, this is a very audacious choice. Uh-huh. And I just rep- and we replied to her and we just went, challenge accepted. Mm-hmm. And so we had to figure out how do we convey these guys wrestling? How did each you? Other? I didn't see that one. So- how did you do it? So the brilliant thing was, so the within the original cast was their fight choreographer. And so he figured out this way that if people picked up their computers and kind of swung them around <laughs> and stuff, it would kind of convey. And so he picks up the computer and they're t- and it's going left and right and left and right. And then he just falls on his back. So it looks like he's body slammed. And it looked really amazing. Wow. Except for when we um, we were in rehearsal and Desmond Voorhees um, went to do a super kick and he overextended and he kicked his computer right. off off the platform, which was which was really great. But I just feel like we did a play where people wrestled each other yeah. and they weren't even in the same and room. And it was like, believable. And it was believable. People thought it was really great. And then, you know, we did Tony Stone later on. And that's another very physical play. It's not only just about baseball, but there are these very long choreographed sequences, uh, movement sequences. And we were like, how do we convey this? And the solution was, well, we have some of the people stay in frame doing what they need to do. But what if we have the other half of the people 
running around through their apartment. So it's conveying this kind of journey and movement mm-hmm. of like they start in one place and they end in and they go through and they end in another. So that's like a long way of saying like you can do anything. I really think you can to a degree. I think some of the stuff you just have to be very creative. And I think that's also what's very fun. It feels very like like piecemeal. It feels to a degree like the the ethos of like fiasco theater of like taking what we have and doing what we can with it. I think it's going to do a disservice to a lot of people, a lot of organizations and a lot of audiences to suddenly say you can't do this anymore. Right. Um, and and I'll, I'll I'll just share this w- with you of the story I got. We did a reading last summer, and um, it, someone in the reading had like a, a following. They they've been on a couple of like cult sci fi shows, and so you know there are a lot of passionate people watching the reading. And I got an email afterwards from one of the viewers, um, and. Uh, the email essentially was like, you know, I have so-and-so condition and I, I had an episode this morning and I, I just want to say thank you because, you know, if this had been in person, I wouldn't have been able to go, but you brought this to, to me and I needed this so bad right now. And I feel like we talk a lot about, um, Sorry, I don't mean to get choked up. No, but I um, get it. It's such a beautiful we, thing, and it's why you do it. We talk about accessibility in the theater a lot, and I feel like in those conversations, we talk a lot about demographic, financial, but I feel like we don't talk about physical mm-hmm. accessibility. Right. You know, I, I've had people, I've had interviews where they go, it, well, it's great. You're taking New York theater out of New York's backyard and all over the world. And I go, yeah, it's great, but let's talk about New York's backyard. Let's talk about the people that live 20 blocks from Broadway and through no fault of their own can't go to the theater. Right. This is an amazing opportunity to be able to provide this kind of stuff to those individuals. And I think, I think it's, I think it's going to be really terrible if we suddenly tell those communities like sorry you're out of luck again right you know you got this for a year right be grateful so you know i i i in if there's anyone listening to this that is is in equity or any of these unions in a position that is dealing with any of this stuff please i implore you and i plead with you this is important this is stuff that needs to be able to continue to exist past this this is not a band-aid this is a tool that is is not just helpful but it's also going to be fulfilling to people that otherwise can't access it well i could not agree with you more i can't imagine anyone being more articulate with their plea. And I want you to tell people, because I know everyone listening now wants to know more about Play Per View and watch what you are creating for us to view. How do people find you in all the places, but especially how do we find the content that you're streaming? Um, well, so our website is play-perview.com. Um, that is our main website where you can go and see all of our upcoming events, uh, of which we have uh, we have a couple of readings coming up um, with some amazing people, including uh, um, 
Mary Testa, Becca Blackwell, Nathan Lee Graham, uh, Tova Felcha, Peter Mark Kendall. Uh, we're also doing a reunion reading of Bad Jews, um, which is very exciting. And uh, everyone can find out more information about all of that and sign up for our newsletter at play-purview.com. Um, and also our social media on Twitter, we are at play underscore purview. Um, again, it's at play underscore purview. And then on Instagram, uh, we are at play per underscore view. Uh, and people should follow us on our Instagram because we have a really neat uh, Instagram live thing that we uh, do every now and then called the debrief, which is where we um, we bring back we bring back people who have um, done past readings with us, and we kind of interview them about what their experience was like uh, working with us, and um, it's it's really neat. Um, I it's I don't see really anyone else doing that kind of stuff, and it's fun to kind of do deep dive of like. What was it like doing Zoom theater for the first time? Well, um, we all love behind the scenes and that <laughs> and, and we can never get enough. Jeremy Ween, thank you. I said at the beginning of this episode what you bring to this community and so many communities and the the raising of awareness of so many really important topics. Um I just adore you and I just love your passion and the way you keep reinventing the wheel in all of these different ways. So thank you for being on the podcast today. I cannot wait to see what happens next um, and what a joy to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and I hope you've enjoyed the previous 200 something episodes, which I have loved making every single one. If you have been thinking about contributing to the podcast, it couldn't be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations and it's all laid out for you there. I would be forever grateful, but mostly I'm just so happy to make this show for you and I can't wait to share next week's guest. Until then, stay safe, be healthy, and thank you for listening. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.